church. I have terrible news. My outline is eight pages. <laughs> We're going to begin in Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 19. Turn with me there. Hebrews 10, starting in 19. I'm pretty sure that the Apostle Paul wrote the letter to the Hebrews. And so throughout, you'll probably hear me say that Paul has written or Paul has said. Instead of just the Apostle or the author. Verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. Since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed pure with water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So I will be continuing on the theme of the local church that James and I have been focusing on for many weeks now. Um, there are some more things that I want to teach you about the local church. Today we're going to look at some of the things that we do here and why we do them. Um, this is not new material. I've taught on this stuff before, so it might be familiar to some of you. So I've often heard pastors and preachers begin a sermon by saying something like, this message is going to upset some people. And then what typically follows from an introduction like that is an incoherent beatdown about one or more particular sins that are plaguing our nation or our church. Remember a few years ago when the uh, Supreme Court defended same-sex marriage Preachers and pulpits throughout our nation were filled with newly minted prophets against Sodom and Gomorrah. But this message is not about our nation, and it's not really about a sin that has plagued you. Sermons that are about dealing with sin, which they have their place and they are important, we should address sin in our lives, in our assemblies. But sermons about that often amount to little more than just telling people, have you tried not sinning? You know, just don't sin. How do I stop sinning in my anger? Don't get angry. How do I stop lusting? Well, don't lust. I think we can agree that this sort of approach to dealing with sin should be thrown in the trash and set on fire, right? This idea that, you know, God's not going to bless you until you stop sinning. We're going to learn today that without the blessing of God, you can't stop sinning. The grace of God comes first and is necessary for killing sin in your life. I have heard some sermons that will say that the uh, solution to sin in your life is to pray and read scripture. And these are good things. We do need to be doing that, right? We need to be praying. We need to be praying for ourselves, for our brothers and sisters in Christ. We need to be asking God to give us the grace and the power to overcome those things that we struggle with. 
And we need to be reading scripture. We need to know who Christ is. And the way you know who Christ is, is by reading what he has revealed about himself. But even these things, while they are absolutely essential to your maturity and to your faith, they make an incomplete solution to sin in your life, to growing in your faith to growing in your love for one another. And so if all you have are prayer and the reading of Scripture, this is less than ideal. Now, Scripture gives us a solution to this problem. Scripture tells us how to grow in our knowledge of Christ, how to grow in our love for one another, how to kill sin. But we'll get there. I do want to talk about who this sermon is for. And in general, who the preaching that happens on the Lord's Day is intended for. Evangelism is not my primary directive. Right? I'm assuming that those of you who have come to attend the gathering of the saints on the Lord's Day are the saints who are gathering. So I'll say it this way, the church is not for lost people. The assembly of the saints is for the saints. Remember the boast of one false teacher. He said, and this is a quote, we don't teach from books of the Bible because it gets in the way of evangelism. We don't offer different kinds of Bible studies because it gets in the way of our evangelism. We don't teach doctrine because it gets in the way of our evangelism. If you want to be fed God's word or have the Bible explained to you, then you are a fat, lazy Christian and you need to shut up and get to work. Or you need to leave this church because we only do evangelism. Wow. (laughs) My children often have to tell me, Dad, we don't say stupid. But things like that really make me want to say it, right? That idea is completely contrary to the testimony of Scripture. It's the exact opposite of what Paul tells us to do when we gather on the Lord's Day. What we are supposed to do as the church. And don't get me wrong, there's nothing wrong with bringing your lost friends to church. You can bring your lost friends to church, you can invite people to church, and they will hear the gospel of Christ. But the meat of my teaching today is for you, the saints, who know Christ. So bring your lost friends to church, and they will hear the gospel many times before we untie them and let them go home. But it's not evangelism to do that. Evangelism is the testimony of what Christ has done for you, shared with those around you. The people that you meet, the people that you love. These things that we're going to talk about today that we do in the assembly have no application For lost people, except that they hear the voice of the shepherd in the teaching of the gospel. I've even heard of churches permitting lost people to be members as long as they are faithful in service in some way. I wonder if those churches practice church discipline. Hebrews 10. The first three verses of this section, verses 19 through 21, Paul tells us the reason for doing the things that we're told to do in verse 22. Right, in verse 22, he says, let us draw near. What are we drawing near to? The thing that we draw near to is Christ, right? The apostle is upholding Christ as the 
center of all religious worship. All the things that we do are about Christ. And he's making a distinction between that and the altar and the tabernacle of ancient Israel. He spends the first 18 verses of chapter 10 and chapter 7, 8, and 9 making this distinction. That the worship of the Old Covenant, the worship of Israel, is just a shadow of the risen Messiah. And so he tells us, draw near to Christ. Let us be intimate with Christ. And then he gives us an exhortation. Tells us the attitude, the heart that we can have when we draw near to Christ. He says, with a true heart in full assurance of faith. So saints, you have been born again. Your heart is true and you have full assurance in Christ. And this assurance is part and parcel to your faith. Right? We don't have faith in our faith. We have faith in Christ. We don't have faith in a prayer that we prayed one time or something that we have done or a magical baptism that we have experienced. But we have faith in Christ, the one who has done the work. This word from Paul guarantees the certainty of that salvation. That our hearts are sprinkled clean from evil consciences. The sprinkling by the blood of Christ. Our bodies are washed with pure water. The blood of Christ. So Paul is upholding Christ in distinction with the ceremony, the work of the Jewish temple. All the people approaching the temple had to be cleaned because they were nasty and they were wicked. And there were ceremonies that they had to undergo before they could even step on the property. But we see here in Hebrews 10 that we have already been washed clean by the blood of Christ once and for all, made pure before him by his work for the purpose of worshiping him. So the apostle continues, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. He declares our full assurance in the gospel of Christ. So what we have here is everything that we need to have a fully formed doctrine of assurance. If I ask you, what is your doctrine of assurance? You can say what I just told you, that Christ is faithful, that we are washed clean by him. And this is an important thing to understand given the spiritual climate that we live in. Right? I haven't talked about our good works yet, right? Your good works, the things that you do, are not an essential part of the assurance of your faith. Now, there are good works necessary for salvation. And there are good works necessary for the assurance of faith. There's your soundbite, haters. But those good works that are essential for our salvation, those good works that are necessary for our full assurance, are the works of Christ. The work of Christ in commanding the lame to walk. The work of Christ in telling the blind to see. The work of Christ in kneeling before the Roman guards who beat him. And the work of Christ in submitting to death at the hands of Rome. And the work of Christ in crying out, I thirst 
being given a sponge of vinegar. And the work of Christ in crying out, it is finished. And giving up his spirit into the care of his father. And in the work of Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, rising from the dead, and appearing to Mary and Mary, and Peter and James and John and the rest of the disciples. And the work of Christ in waiting patiently at the right hand of his Father for the time when he will return to judge the nations. These are the good works necessary for your salvation and the good works necessary for your assurance in it. Christ alone is sufficient for our assurance. Now, if you're reading ahead to verse 24, you will see that the phrase good works appears. So there is a distinction I want us to understand between verses 23 and 24, and that is that we must understand the difference between what God has done for us and what God has commanded us to do. Verse 24, Paul writes, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. And when he says, let us consider, that is a rhetorical device. That means, I'm going to tell you. Let us consider. I'm going to tell you how to stir one another up to love and good works. So we talked about killing sin. We talked about growing in our faith and maturity, right? Just have more faith. Just stop sinning. Paul tells us how to do it here. Do not neglect to meet together. Do not neglect the assembly of the saints. Now, until the end of days, we will hear people argue that they can have church with their friend over breakfast on a Tuesday, or that the the worship in an individual family is sufficient for meeting the demands of the word here. But it is not. The apostle is once again upholding the gospel reality in distinction with the gatherings of Israel. Under the old covenant, Jews offered sacrifices. They gathered for worship at the temple. And so once again, the author of Hebrews is upholding what we're supposed to do as the New Testament church in distinction with what the Jews did. Subjected to the shadows found in the law. And so this New Testament reality that those shadows represented is the gathering of the saints on the Lord's day. And so we're going to talk about this gathering. We're going to talk about the things that we do, why we do them. And so the word we have, the phrase that we have for these things, we call them means of grace. That's your vocabulary word for the day. The means of grace. Meaning, these are the things that God uses to give us grace for maturity in our faith. These means of grace are those things that God has promised to use for the dispensation of some measure of grace, either for the salvation of souls, for the quickening of the new spirit, or for the mortification of our flesh. By quickening of the new spirit, I mean that these are the things that God has given us to encourage us to a lively and active faith. By the mortification of the flesh, I mean that these are the things that God has given us to kill sin in our lives. Right? Because that remnant of the flesh remains. We have been regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit. We have been given grace 
to do those things which God commands, and yet our flesh lives on, though it be dying. And there are times when we act in our flesh and not in our spirit. And these means of grace are the things that God has given us to continue to kill our flesh. So there's two different things I want you to understand about means of grace. There's two types. There are salvific means of grace and non-salvific means of grace. And when I say salvific means of grace, I mean this thing saves you. This thing is a means by which God causes the conversion of a lost soul into a regenerate soul. And there is only one. The hearing of the gospel. The proclamation of the work of Christ. This is the only salvific means of grace. What I mean by that is that God uses the teaching of scripture, the teaching of the gospel, to save his people. It is the means by which God pours out his grace upon those elect who have not yet had faith in him. Right? Psalm 3, verse 8, tells us that salvation is from the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. And the first and greatest blessing that God pours out upon his people is that he saves them from their wickedness. That he rescues them from the darkness that they enjoy so much. Paul declares in Romans 1, I am not ashamed of this gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. These means, the way in which God saves his people, is the declaration of the gospel of Christ. And this gospel of Christ is the person and the work of Jesus who he was, what he did. You'll often hear people who object to this gospel say things like, if God is sovereign in all things, and especially in the salvation of his people alone, why do we have to have evangelism? Right? All God's people are going to get saved even if I do nothing about it. We affirm that God has foreordained all the means unto salvation, and he has told us exactly what those means are. The declaration of the gospel. So yes, God is sovereign and he has appointed his people to share his gospel with his people. So that all who are elect of God will be drawn to him. The salvific means of grace. Now, there are non-salvific means of grace. There are more than one. These non-salvific means of grace are those things that God has established for the strengthening of our faith. They're the things that God has given us to do to increase our faith. To put to death our flesh. And these means of grace apply only to those who have already experienced the salvific means of grace. These things that we do Hint, in the church, in the assembly, they apply, they go out to only those who have been regenerated by the Spirit of God. So they have no application to those who have not. So we talked a little bit 
here in Hebrews about how Paul is upholding the assembly of the saints in distinction with the assembly of Israel. And so this is the part where I sort of stray from an explicit exposition here of Hebrews 10 and more explore just sort of those things that we do here in the church. Now remember, the assembly of the saints is the full revelation, the gospel reality of the Jewish temple. And for this reason, this first means of grace, this first thing that we do is that we gather. And it's not just that we gather, but we gather on a particular day, which we call the Lord's Day, the first day of the week. Now, one of the reasons that we gather like this is because we have been commanded to do so, right? You know your Ten Commandments? It's number four. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. So this fourth commandment is established as an ordinance of creation. Remember God rested on the seventh day of creation. Now, there are those who would argue that um, this, this one command, don't worry about it anymore, right? You got ten commands, one, two, three, five, six, seven, eight, nine, don't worry about number four. This command has not passed away. Just as none of the others have passed away. This command is part of our obedience to the command of Christ to love the Lord your God. Now, it's important to observe that this command does not actually tell us what day we're supposed to observe, right? Um, The, are you familiar with the Seventh-day Adventists? Their beloved false prophet, Ellen White, would tell us that what we are doing right now is the mark of the beast. The gathering on the first day of the week is the mark of the beast described in Revelation. But the command doesn't tell us when we are to gather. It was actually a different context in which the Jews in particular were told to rest on the seventh day. The Jewish Sabbath, the seventh day of the week, is observed in remembrance of the exodus from Egypt. And in contrast, our Sabbath, the Christian Sabbath, is observed in remembrance of Christ's exodus from the grave. Which happened on which day of the week? Sunday. The meaning of our Sabbath is prophesied by the psalmist in Psalm 118. Uh, 22 to 24, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. This stone is Christ. And we can observe that Christ was dead on the Jewish Sabbath. But he rested in glory on the first day in his resurrection. And then finally, and probably most importantly, in Acts 20, we see the example of the apostles gathering with the saints for the teaching of the word on the first day of the week. In Acts chapter 20, verse 7, on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day, and he prolonged his message until midnight. His outline was 28 pages. And so this is the context. All these other non-salvific means of grace are given in exactly this context. They are things that we do when we gather on the Lord's day as commanded. So the first one that we have is the preaching of the word. 
Every Sunday you come and you listen to one of us teach the word. And again, that's exactly what we see Paul doing there in Acts chapter 20. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 tells us that God equips man for every good work. Specifically through scripture. And so we teach this scripture. Doing good works is a spiritual ambition that is made possible only through the work of the Spirit in us. And so this equipping of man from Scripture by God is a dispensation of grace given by the Spirit of God through the means of teaching the Scripture. What else do we do when we gather? We sing songs, don't we? Colossians 3, verse 16, Paul tells us, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And so at the command of the apostle, we sing songs. Through those songs, we teach one another. We worship God. We express our thankfulness to him for the work that he has done. We learn about him. We are filled up with joy by the Holy Spirit when we sing. And Paul intends that our songs teach. So about that, it's really important that the songs that we sing are faithful to the teaching of Scripture, right? It's important that the songs that we sing actually be about God, right? It's important that the songs that we sing be more than something to make us feel good. Right? Now, don't get me wrong. Music is given to us to make us feel something. God has given us music, commanded us to sing And we are supposed to feel something. It's supposed to make us feel something. But we cannot take that emotion that we have when we sing and uphold it above all other things that we are supposed to do when we sing. When we gather together, those who profess faith in the gospel of Christ are commanded to be baptized, right? This physical baptism commanded of all believers is a picture, an image, representing this baptism by the Spirit into the death of Christ. As Paul tells us in Romans 6, verse 4, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we might walk in newness of life. So when a new believer is baptized, it is a profession to the assembly of the saints that they have buried their flesh. Their flesh has been put to death and their spirit has been brought to life with Christ in his resurrection. God gives us grace in this. Grace to the one baptized and grace to the assembly observing for the strengthening of our faith. Now every Lord's Day, we take the Lord's table. I grew up going to a church that did it quarterly, which always seemed really strange to me. Especially once I started reading what Scripture has to say about the Lord's table. Paul tells us that this, he calls it a cup of blessing. He tells us that this taking of the Lord's table is a participation in the death and resurrection of Christ. 
but four times a year is good enough. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three to 26. For I received from the Lord that, that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So shall we now proclaim the Lord's death quarterly? The cup of blessing that we bless, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? There is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. When we take the Lord's table, we proclaim the Lord's death. And what happened in the Lord's death? In the Lord's death, he takes on the sins of his people. He endures the wrath of the Father on behalf of his people. When we take the Lord's table, we proclaim the propitiation of the saints. We proclaim that God's wrath has been satisfied for us in Christ. And more than this, this cup is a cup of blessing. When we take it, grace is poured out. Grace for the strengthening of our faith. Now, to be clear, you can engage with all of these things in a manner that is without grace. You can engage with the assembly of the saints apart from faith. And remember when I said these things are not for lost people. It is a lively, living faith in Christ. That is strengthened by these things. Paul tells us that we feed upon Christ. This language is congruent, consistent with what Jesus talks about in John 6. He confuses a lot of people when he tells them that I am the bread of life. You eat my body and you will live. And those among him who had not ears to hear the spiritual truth were very concerned. So 1 Corinthians 10 where We talk about this participation in the body and blood of Christ. It's referring spiritually to the truth of John 6, 47 through 59. Let's go there and read it. Jesus said a lot of things to make the Pharisees uncomfortable. That's one of the the reasons he teaches in parables so often. He teaches in parables for the good of the church so that those with spiritual ears and spiritual eyes can hear and see what he is saying. And those without them think he's telling a dumb story. John 6, verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And here it is. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, 
Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread that the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. He's saying this in the assembly of the Jews. Now, when Jesus is talking about this stuff in John 6, he's not talking about that. He's not saying, eat that and you will live. He's talking about himself. He's talking about faith in the work that he would go on to do. To eat the flesh and drink the blood of Christ is to have faith in the work that he performed. But, when Paul, in 1 Corinthians 10, talks about doing that, he's telling us, remember the work of Christ. Receive the grace of God for the strengthening of your faith in the work of Christ. By taking the Lord's table. And so, no, the point of John 6 is not the Lord's table. But the point of the Lord's table is John 6. What else do we do? We pray. We pray together, we pray for one another. See throughout Paul's letters that Paul is praying for you, church. We see commands that we should pray for one another. We should pray for our leaders. We should pray for our kings. We should pray for our elders. We should pray for our brothers and sisters. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 11. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Paul's writing a letter to this church because he needs help. And he says, pray for me. Because Paul believes that the prayers of the saints are powerful. Ephesians 6, 18-20 Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. James five thirteen through 18. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. And he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. We must pray for one another, church. I always find it more difficult 
to pray for someone than to go do something to help them, right? If I come and help you, I can see the work of my hands. I can see what I have done. And I can look at it and say, I have done a good job. (laughs) But when I pray, I cannot see anything. I cannot see the work that I am doing. Right? Because the blessing, the work in our prayer is done by God. The power of our prayers is found in the sovereignty and the faithfulness of the Father. And there's grace in it. There's grace for us. There's grace for those who we pray for. There is another means of grace. Now I told you that the means of grace that we exercise that we engage in, these are not for lost people, and they're not for people outside of the assembly. But this is sort of an exception. When the church engages in church discipline, that is a means of grace. It's the only non-salvific means of grace that is given to those outside the local assembly, but it is still given through the exercise of the saints in the local assembly. In church discipline, all these other non-salvific means of grace are removed from the one under discipline at the command of Christ in Matthew 18. And so, from the inside, looking out, church discipline can appear to be a salvific means of grace. Because we are instructed to treat the one cast out as a Gentile and a tax collector. Can have the appearance of an unbeliever returning to the faith. Jesus tells us that When our brother repents, it is as if we have gained a brother. It is as though they have been saved. To the one that is cast out, grace can be given through the proclamation of the gospel. And if they are unregenerate, only through this proclamation. the one cast out is elect of God. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 5, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So in church discipline, even those elect of God may experience grievous sin. They may experience being cast out of the fellowship of the saints in accordance with Jesus' instruction in Matthew 18. And there is grace in that. Paul tells us that we cast them out for the destruction of their flesh so that in the day of the Lord they may be saved. Church discipline is hard. When it gets to that last step that Jesus describes in Matthew 18. And we've done it before, and it hurts. It hurts to see one who we once called brother or sister treated as a Gentile and a tax collector. But we must trust that God is faithful to do what he has said he will do. If our brother cast out is elect, then God will be faithful to call them back to the assembly of the saints.
And so that is what we do. That's what we do here when we gather on the Lord's Day. So, now we're going to talk about some theological words for a minute. Um, If you read our statement of faith, if you read any theology, ecclesiology um, that's been written in the last 1,600 years, um, you read the creeds, remember the ancient creeds, apostles' creeds, Nicene creeds, there are three words that you might come across. Universal, invisible, Catholic. Okay. So these are words, you might hear the phrase universal church, invisible church, the church Catholic. And really what people are trying to say when they say this is just to sort of refer generally to the elect of God. And so... I'm going to tell you that these words are not a biblical category. When we talk about invisible church and universal church, what I mean by not a biblical category is that Scripture doesn't really look at it that way. Scripture doesn't talk about the saints that way. Scripture doesn't talk about our assembly, our church, or the elect of God in that way. And so, I'll say that there is no meaningful distinction between the universal, the invisible Catholic church and local visible churches. Except possibly that there are members of local churches who are not born again. Sometimes. Now, there are exceptions to how we talk about this. I mean that the whole elect of God are in some sense a subset of all the visible churches. The whole elect of God are, in some sense, just part of local churches, right? But to understand what I mean, we need to talk about these exceptions to that claim. What am I not claiming? I'm not claiming that if you skip church, you ain't saved. <laughs> I'm not claiming that... You have to go to church in order to receive salvation. But what I am claiming is that a elect person finding themselves separated from the assembly of the saints is either living in sin by doing so or is the result of some kind of sin or It has been the will of God to make them unable to go. I'm sure you could find some other exceptions and say, gotcha, with what I'm saying here. But it is always suboptimal. It is always not ideal for an elect person to be separated from the assembly of the saints. Okay, let's talk about some of these exceptions. An elect person being under church discipline having been cast out of the fellowship. You can be elect of God. You can be regenerate. And by giving your flesh enough food to grow and fester and rot, you can find yourself on the wrong end of the discipline described in Matthew 18. Right, And then you find yourself separated from the assembly of the saints, and that, of course, is a result of sin. Right? An elect person can 
experience a season of rebellion and remove themselves from the assembly of the saints. You miss a few weeks because you were sick. You realize that it, you know, it's easier not to go, right? You can find yourself living in this habit of being away from the assembly. An elect person can be wrongfully cast out of the local assembly, right? That could happen. In that case, yes, it's the result of sin. It's our sin. It's not their sin. You might have an elect person having believed the gospel through the teaching of some evangelist and their ill-conceived mission being left by them with no access to a local assembly. That's why I don't understand things like, I call it missionary tourism. Right, we're going to go into this place with no churches. And when we leave, there's going to be no churches. But we're still going to hope that they end up with a lively and active faith. Right, Because once you have faith in Christ, you ask the question, what now? You gather with the saints and you partake of these means of grace and you grow in your faith together with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Right, okay, I have faith in Christ, what do I do now? You go be baptized which is a declaration of your faith to the saints. So if your plan for evangelism involves leaving people without access to the saints, you should rethink your plan. I'm not saying don't go evangelize. People need to hear the gospel, but... We build schools without building churches. We're not really doing evangelism. If we train teachers without training pastors, we aren't doing evangelism. And an elect person can find themselves with no access to a biblical assembly. Because if you go out there, you will find that biblical assembly is a lot more rare than I once thought. is for those people that my heart hurts. It's every Lord's Day morning when I've not seen Sister Karen that my heart hurts. It is seeing her this morning that fills me with inexpressible joy. It is a joy that only comes from Christ. It is a joy that only comes from the assembly of the saints. Seeing you, brothers and sisters.
And we have nothing in common except this gospel that is all I need to be filled with joy when I see you. That is the assembly. That's how you kill sin. You gather together. You love one another. You take and eat and drink of Christ's flesh and blood. It's how you get to know Christ. You hear his word taught. It's how you are filled with joy. The music of the saints. Right, we don't have a, our band isn't very fancy, is it? (laughs) I've been part of worship bands that were really good. And I've never been filled with joy the way I am when I hear your voices. Worshiping in spirit and in truth. When we have new believers, when our children profess faith in Christ, they are baptized. We are filled with joy to see their professions made. Now, the last time I taught this material, I gave my sermon a clickbait title called Sometimes God Cannot Be Trusted. The maturing of your faith is found here in the grace of God poured out in these means of grace. God has promised grace upon grace for love and good works, for the strengthening of your faith in these things. And the reality for those who forsake them is that God has not promised that same grace. God has not promised to bless you with grace for strength and maturity outside of the assembly of the saints. Now, the Lord is certainly free to bless you with immeasurable grace for the strengthening of your flesh, for the strengthening of your faith, the killing of your flesh. And sometimes he does, but he has not promised this outside of the assembly. And that is why we gather. Because it is here that he has promised to raise us up. It's here that we can encourage one another. Right? And that's why we're called a body. Right? Because we're essential to the body. Each of us. You don't go to work having cut off your hands and expect to do a good job, right? You don't cut off your hands. That's what it's like when we gather and some of us are missing. We love our own bodies. We nourish and cherish our own body parts. We have to do the same for our brothers and sisters. When our brothers and sisters are missing, we have a duty to love them and to care for them. Not to be judgmental, right? not calling you when you miss church to let you know hey that was you're sinning again come on I miss you I want to see you all of this is given for 
your joy, for your peace, for your comfort, for the strengthening of your faith. All of these things are given so that we may grow unto maturity. Right, this is the spiritual meat we talked about last time I was up here. Remember in Hebrews 6, Paul talks about you know, spiritual milk. Some of you are still drinking that spiritual milk. You should go into solid food. And these things we will do if the Lord wills. Love you, church. Let's pray. God, give us grace. Grace to hear your word, to receive your word. Grace to grow in our maturity. Grace for knowing that Christ is faithful. Grace for loving our brothers and sisters. God, we thank you that through your word we may see these things, hear these things, know these things. God, I pray for all my brothers and sisters that you would continue to fill them with a love for you, for your son, for your word, for your saints. Pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.